for Where Hollywood Hides. Here's Bob and Suzanne. Chicken joke. I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. Baby, you're the great. Here comes the judge. Small cowbell. That fashion. There's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no business. Welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 35. My name is Bob McCullough. And my name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. Are you sure it's 35? 35. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's adding up, huh? It sure is. Are you tired yet? No, I'm not. I <laughs> okay. love doing this. All right. I love it's, doing this. It's a lot this. of fun, a lot of fun. Today we have a great interview with the great actress, Diane McBain, and her personal story is very unique. And when you hear the interview, you'll understand what a genuine Hollywood actress is really all about. A beautiful woman. Wonderful. started off. Incredible beauty. And uh, with credits, well, I won't go into them right now, but it's a terrific interview. You know me and trivia, right? Yep. The famous Dantana restaurant is celebrating its 50 years. Do you on, remember Dantana? On Santa, Santa Monica Boulevard, West Hollywood. That's right. Opened by somebody from Yugoslavia. Uh, he was a former soccer star and sometime actor. And this gentleman opened up Dominic's in West Hollywood and turned it into Dantana. And his name is Dantana, and it became the re- one of the many restaurants for the rich and the famous. I remember you couldn't get a reservation if you weren't the right name. Well, there's there's only 17 tables in the restaurant. Right. And I know you and I went there a few times. Uh, every, every time we went there, we bumped into Clint Eastwood. What a pity. Yeah, that was hard. God, he was <laughs> so handsome. Yes. Good old Clint. This restaurant, Dantana's, opened up with La Scala, the Brown Derby, and since then, most of the restaurants have come and gone. Right. And Dantana's now is serving meals to the grandkids of the rich and the famous in those days. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, Crazy. they had a private party. I'm they sure your, your, your other boyfriend was there, I'm sure. Which one? Don Rickles. Oh, I love Don Rickles. We used to see him all the time there. I wish we could interview him. Well, we'll, we'll run him down. We'll run him down. I'm sure he still has a lot to say. Oh, I'm sure he does. Dantana was interviewed and he said that he remembered Drew Barrymore. Parents brought her to the restaurant and actually changed her diaper on the bar. That restaurant has been around for a while. It has. Anyway, um, let's talk about our book. And I want to encourage everybody to go out and buy our book, Where Hollywood Hides in Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. Just the perfect memento of Santa Barbara and kind of a talisman of Hollywood celebrity in the area. It's a hardcover, full-color, first edition, packed with pictures. And you don't have to be from Santa Barbara to love this book. We've had people from around the world ordering it, far away as uh, Germany and South Africa. And the book is available on our website at wherehollywoodhides.com. And, and on Amazon. So we went to see a movie last night. We did a great movie. The Judge. The Judge, Robert Downey Jr., Robert he, Duvall, the two Bobs. He was, they were so great. And, you know, it's really a great movie. A real, well, in my opinion, it always starts with the script. And Downey produced that. And uh, you told me he and his wife formed a production company. Yes. And this is their very first outing. I must say, they did a terrific job in picking material that really had something, some meat on the bones. I think Robert Downey Jr. was quoted as saying he was extremely grateful for the success that he's had 
an Iron Man, but he was ready to do a different kind of acting. And I must tell you, I really, really loved the movie. Of course, you know, bring some tissues. It made me cry throughout the movie. Yeah, not many movies. And it made me laugh because Robert Downey Jr. is only... Robert Downey Jr. Well, he was he cast himself perfectly. It's uh, how many movies running two hours and twenty minutes hold your attention? Was it that long? The movie was two hours and twenty minutes, and feel like it, it felt like a half an hour because there was so much story to be told. And I must tell you, if Robert Duvall does not win the Academy Award for his performance in this picture, I'll be surprised. So uh, as we get into today's interview uh, with Diane McBain, I just want to quickly let you know the breadth of her career. Uh, she began very early in life starring in such shows as Maverick. She was in a feature with Richard Burton called Ice Palace. She has had television and feature credits, including uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Jake and the Fat Man, Knight Rider, Man from Uncle, Batman, Surfside Six. She played the title role in the feature Claudel English, which is, as you'll hear during the interview, is going to be re-released on a DVD. She's a fabulous lady, one of uh, cinema's all-time beauties, and... The conversation with her was terrific. She had a lot lot of insight and another very real person. So let's talk to Diane McBain. Hi, Diane. This is Bob McCullough. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good. And my wife, Susanna, is with us. Hi, Diane. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. So, Diane, the way these things generally work is our listeners really enjoy hearing about how people initially get the calling to go into show business. So if you could give us an idea what your childhood was like and... That very first instinct you got that you thought you might be in front of the camera. I'm sorry to report I never received a calling to become an actress. Although my grandmother, on occasion, we would, when I was very little, we would sit out on the porch after dinner at night. And uh, we lived in Glendale, which was right over the hill from Hollywood. And when they were having their premieres, in those days they had lots of them, um, they would turn on the, the lights, the searchlights in the sky and... She would say to me, Diane, one day those searchlights are going to be looking for you. <laughs> I love it. It, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful, but at the time it meant absolutely nothing to me. It's not like I followed her advice or anything. I, I fell into the business. I really did. I, it was not something I pursued at all. Now, how did you fall into it? Tell us about that. As I was growing up, I, of course, realized that I wasn't well-equipped for some of the more uh, ordinary jobs that women had to do in those days. Remember back then, we didn't have women's rights. Now we don't have equal pay, but then we didn't even get the job (laughs) unless we were very exceptional. And so we, you know, we would be nurses or we would be teachers, wonderful jobs. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're not wonderful and they should be paid much better than they are. But that was the kind of job, and I wasn't suitable for that at all. I I was not a teacher, and I certainly wasn't a caretaker. So I didn't know what to do with my life, and people were giving me all kinds of suggestions. And um, a friend of my father came along and said, well, you know, they're doing little plays down at the Glendale Center Theater. Um, At the time, the Glendale Center Theater was nothing but a a little house where they put on productions in the living room. It was quite adorable, and there was plenty of space to have a a center theater, a theater in the round where the audience is surrounding you. So, hey, you know, what did I have to do other than to go and and to check it out, which I did. Now, Diane, how old were you? Oh, 16, probably. Oh, pretty young. Okay. I was very young. And, And by that time, too, I'd been encouraged to join beauty contests. 
I became Miss Real Estate uh, in Glendale for that for a, when I was like 16 or something. Then I was Miss Glendale, and I was on the float, and uh, things like that kept happening. I mean, I didn't really pursue it. It just sort of either sort of landed in my lap because, well. I'm, you know, I was pretty, and so people just thought, well, that's a natural thing to do, right. to, you know, put you in the movies or on the screen, or let's, let's do commercials, you know. So, so, <laughs> so. Were your, were your, how were your parents? Were they encouraging? Were they part of the business at that time? No, they weren't a part of it at all. My father was a bus driver, and my mom, at that point, had become a hairdresser, and um, daddy was just, you know, beside himself with pride. And mom, mom, yes, (laughs) mom was very cautious and for good reason, to be honest. Uh, She was very cautious and she uh, didn't really want me to do that. Um, There was a young man, a young doctor who she really encouraged me to get involved with. But, you know, I I just didn't quite go for him. I should have, believe me, a few years later I would have, but I was just too young. Right. And so then, then the movie business was kind of beckoning. In a so, sense so when you're so when you're when you're getting all of this attention, did your parents? Did it come to them that, oh my goodness, this girl is something special, and maybe we should let her find her way in Hollywood? Was there resistance to that, or were you encouraged? Like I said, mom was cautious, and dad was, you know, uh, just so prideful that he couldn't stand himself. I, <laughs> I'm not sure I could stand him either. He, <laughs> well, you you sounded like you were daddy's girl for sure. Well, oh, certainly he, he loved me a lot and I yeah. loved him. So, of course, but he was just very cute uh, about the whole thing. He just did. He just had to brag all over the place about his daughter. And, you know, I, I kind of appreciated that, except that if I wasn't playing baseball as a young child, or if I hadn't been in beauty contests, I don't think my father ever would have known I was alive. I didn't really fit his his idea of uh, a kid he could raise, you know, because sure. he was a guy. He was man's man. He was a little awkward around me and things like that. But and he came back from the war, you know, in those crucial years between the time you're like three and six when you're supposed to be falling in love with your father and it makes all the difference in the world in your later life. Well, I didn't get that opportunity because he was in war. Right. He was in World War II. And he came back and he was kind of a stranger to me in a way. And he didn't help exactly because he was a sportsman and and that's all he did. He was listening to uh, the radio all the time, the sports. He would have maybe two radios and he would listen to two, two different stations and then he'd have the newspaper. <laughs> he'd be tuned to Sounds the, like uh, a busy guy. <laughs> oh, he was very busy with the sports. But my parents kind of had a hands-off attitude about what I was to do with myself, I think. They, they just kind of felt like, you know, she will find her own way and um, I guess they had confidence that I would, that made me feel confident that I would find my own way. Um, but I, I must say that the business I chose was a very difficult one. So at, so at the age of 16, you find yourself getting a lot of attention. Did you have thoughts of finding an agent and really making the Hollywood move? Sure. You know, people started saying, well, you need an agent. <laughs> people would come to the theater and see the plays. Initially, uh, somebody suggested that I get a commercial agent, which I did. 
And also, in the meantime, magazine photographers were using me as a model for their magazine covers and things like that. So I, it was just—it was just a budding kind of thing. It just kept going and going, and I just kept following it. The transition from being a 16-year-old budding model and beauty queen to that first Hollywood job—that's a oh, big—that's okay. a bit—that's a big transition. It—it it is a big transition. People would come to the Glendale Center Theater and see the plays, and after getting a modeling agent and getting a couple of commercials and doing all right there, Salibiano from Warner Brothers came to the theater and saw me in a play. And at that point, I was 18, and I had done a bit of more of the theater there, and I had done some commercials. So I had a little bit of experience under my belt. And so they were looking for somebody to play Christine Storm in a movie called Ice Palace at Warner Brothers. And Ice Palace was to be the follow-up to that big movie, Giant, where they had such a big, huge success, and they wanted to do that uh, again with another novel by the same person. So at that point, you were being discovered. Yeah, that's what happened. They and, discovered and, me. And you know, Diane, even though you said that you didn't know quite what to do with yourself, uh, you were actually starting to live every young woman's dream. I know. <laughs> so just prior to Ice Palace, uh, didn't you debut in a TV show called Maverick with James Garner? Actually, um, my first show on that particular set was with Jack Kelly. Right. He was the star along with James Garner. And when when Kelly was on, James Garner was just a, sort of a side part. He wasn't the whole show. It would be Jack Kelly's show. And I got my first screen kiss. From Jack Kelly. Oh. So that was kind of cool. That was and, fun. Uh, yeah, it was. It was very fun. I was only 17. Gosh, I was so young and just as innocent as I could be. I saw it recently, um, and I, I was just so <laughs> charmed, actually, by it, because I had long ago forgotten what anything about those things. I had I had done them so many years ago, and of course, I, I wrote my book, by the way. I did write a book, so I, it's not like I totally forgot them. It's just that I was charmed by the the scene and Jack Kelly kissing me and, and how I responded and all of that. It was really quite cute. <laughs> At the age of 17, are you still in high school? Oh, yeah, I was in high school. I was having a terrible time because the teachers in the school, of course, they don't want you to go anywhere. They want you to sit in that chair at school and be learning, and um, I was off doing an awful lot of things that had nothing to do with school and learning, so they were quite troubled with my education, and I I had to kind of buckle down and, and bite the bullet there for a while in school, because they weren't going to graduate it, me. It's, it sounds like you were growing up a lot faster than your classmates. Well, I guess I was, yeah. yeah also, of. it's a very difficult thing to maintain your budding career and to be sitting in a classroom. That's a lot to ask of a young person. Well, thank you. <laughs> I wish my teachers had appreciated that. <laughs> so was that was that the first show you were actually in front of a motion picture camera? No, actually, I think it was Father Knows Best. And I did a little scene. I didn't even get credit for it. A little scene with Eleanor Donahue as her classmate, and that was my first time being uh, in front of the. Uh, and what was camera. so? What was that experience like? Your first day on a real motion picture set with, I mean, Robert Young is walking around. Um, I, I just never was much of a fan of any of that. I, of course, I watched the shows and everything, but 
I didn't buy the the fan books, and I didn't follow the people, and I didn't really care much, you know, other than when I saw them at night on TV, what they did at any other time. So I was not a fan, and it didn't occur to me, you know, that these people were such a big deal, really. I mean, in the back of my mind, I guess I knew that. It's just that I didn't, I didn't have a real conscious thing about it. I didn't have a, oh my gosh, I'm going to be here. Ooh. <laughs> no, nothing like that. So you were not star, you were certainly not starstruck. You, by then, I was so, not starstruck. No. So fundamentally, you had the professional's attitude of these are just people working for a living. It, it wasn't that important to me. What was important to me was being a teenage girl, being in school, because I wanted to be with my friends and going to proms. And I really wanted to be a cheerleader very much. And I was uh, disallowed from being able to do that because I had to spend so much time um, out, you know, doing jobs. And here I was, you know, uh, in the middle of a career that I didn't even seek out. You know, I mean, it just was well, it I'm that sh- kind of thing. I'm sure those cheerleaders would have loved to have traded spots with you. Well, I think they did. Yeah, yeah. I, I think some of them did. And in fact, one of them became a, a Playboy cover girl at one point, which really shocked me. I was so surprised. <laughs> so so after those initial television forays, you went into feature films with Ice Palace, uh, and that had a pretty substantial cast behind it, didn't it? Oh, very much so, yes. It had a very big cast. Well, Richard Burton, Robert Ryan, and uh, Carolyn Jones, Martha Heyer, Jim Backus. Um, Was the experience at that time for you any different than doing a television series? Well, uh, yeah, it was much more, much more important to me by that time, of course, because by that time I was beginning to get a taste of what this was going to be like, and it was kind of good, you know. Now I didn't know Richard Burton. I just really, I didn't really know who he was. I mean, it was he was not a conscious person in my mind. He was sort of. I, I knew he had done some movies, but that's all I knew about him. And so, of course, when I met him, I was just totally charmed by him and. And, and all of that. So Well, he uh, was a very big star, for sure. He, he was, and a very powerful personality, a persona that um, really, you know, um, personally feel like it extended beyond his uh, years here on the planet. I think he's still very much alive. So his, mm-hmm. chari- his charisma was really a pretty compelling factor, wasn't it? It was huge. It was really huge. And and I, you know, came to appreciate it much later in life when I had already been through quite a few relationships and knew that he was really probably one of the very best among them in terms of the kind of attention he gave to me and how he made me feel and all of that because he made me feel like the most important person in the world. And, of course, every girl wants to feel that way. The way you're describing him, he sounds like one of those people, and I've only had this experience once or twice in my life, and it was with Kirk Douglas. There are certain there are certain people when they walk into a room, you can actually feel their presence. There is an actual physical, I don't know, a wave of energy, call it an aura, whatever you like. But they are not like everybody else. They aren't. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I can only I, I, I can only imagine that having watched Burton over the years in his many roles, uh, he certainly pervades that on screen. He kind of comes across. Yeah. as that sort of an individual. He, he must have had something. He, I mean, Liz Taylor followed him around for quite a while. 
Well, she sure did. Yeah. Now, now, Diane, by uh, this time, I'm sure you were getting a lot of attention because you were so beautiful in such an early age. Did you find that a problem, being so young and beautiful among so many men? I did. It got to be a bigger problem as time went on, actually. And But certainly in the beginning, um, men reacted the way men do. No girl was safe. <laughs> I certainly had uh, plenty of experiences that, you know, were regrettable, but good ones, too. I, I'm not trying to say that it was all bad. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it was it was a difficulty. It was a sure. difficulty. When you were doing a feature film like Ice Palace, and then you went on to do more television, were your agents suggesting that you not do television? And not a lot of people cross over back and forth like you did for so long. It was the beginning of television. If you'll remember, um, that was the beginning of series television, you know, where they would have Surfside 6 and Sunset Strip and on and on and Maverick and all of those shows. They they were all done at Warner Brothers at the time. And those were actually the classic series. I mean, even to this Mm -hmm. day, they're hugely popular. 77 Sunset Strip was, I couldn't miss that show. We did all of those. And, And during my tenure at Warner Brothers, those shows were predominant. And I was not given an opportunity to say, no, I can't, I won't do this. I either did it or I was out the door. <laughs> so, by, so by that time, were you, were you a contract player at Warner's? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. I was under contract at Warner's from 59 until 63, I think it was. It was just about four years. So they, so they, had, they, had, a system, then they had a system basically based upon the old star system. Uh, at, at MGM and Fox, places like that, where yeah, so. wherein they would sign a young talent like yourself and guarantee you so much income per year, but basically you had to appear in whatever they assigned you to. That's right. You you didn't have a choice. One time I did exercise my choice. I was ushered to the door. So in the meantime, I did so much work in both television and film. I did uh, a couple of really good films there. Parish was a, a really good film for me. That was Troy Donahue, wasn't it? Yes, it was Troy Donahue and Claudette Colbert. And Oh, by the way, um, my favorite um, that I got to do was Claudel English, and it's being re- released on DVD. Oh, really? Very soon. I mean, like That's next exciting. month or something. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. I, I'm excited, too. Yeah, I, that means it's, you know... <laughs> It's reached some sort of status, I guess. Well, you know, we've got a great website where Hollywood hides, and we will make sure that we put that up there so people that don't know that can look for it. That would be great. I love that movie because I got to do the title role. Right. And, of course, you know, the the whole plot centered upon my character, and my my character had to, you know, go through uh, uh, an arc of change and so on and it was um, very challenging and I, I was still pretty fresh uh, to the business and hadn't had as much training as I really should have had by that time I I had been so busy that I never got really that much training but I did it and it came out pretty well I can't say a lot for the movie itself in some ways because it's kind of old-fashioned in some ways like they cut to the trees blowing in the wind instead of having, you know, uh, a a scene with lovemaking. Sure, sure. Symbolism reigns supreme in many of those pictures. Well, (laughs) things 
Things certainly have changed a lot, haven't they? So the oh, tra- they sure have. So the- I don't think I could do a lot of what is asked of actresses today. Right. I don't think I could. Yeah. So the transition from uh, a starring role as Claudel English, I mean, that's a huge role for someone your age. Yeah. Uh, and then to be pretty well shuttled off to Surfside 6, Hawaiian Eye, things like that. Did you have any particular... Uh, angst about that i mean the building of a the building of a career in feature films is somewhat different from television it sounds to me like warner brothers it it sounds like warner brothers failed to really capitalize upon your star power at some point well they most assuredly um kind of used me and then threw me away is basically Mm -hmm. how that worked out because i was i have to go back a little bit because tv was so new it was in competition with movies and they didn't know if you could do movies and television or if you had to do only movies or if you had to do only television they they didn't know what would work for people in any of the uh for actors or directors or for anybody they didn't know how that was going to work out so we were just doing what we could to promote ourselves and to give ourselves as many opportunities to be on the screen as possible. So having no choice, I couldn't say no, but I remember that Jane Fonda, who didn't have such a contract, was refusing to do television at the time. And she was very wisely doing that because she didn't believe that a person could do both. She felt that if you did both, you would lose one or the other, which of course is true. Yeah, I think it, so. I think it was for about twenty five years there. It was the predominant thinking, until mm-hmm. someone like Bruce Willis came along and broke out of moonlighting and became a feature actor, and then Clint Eastwood just a little bit before him. Very few people made that transition from television to features and stayed there. Clint Eastwood was doing uh, spaghetti westerns; they called them in Italy. <laughs> right when I was uh, doing my work. So he was getting a lot of experience and doing a lot of stuff there. So of all the shows you did at Warner's, when you look at Burke's Law and 77 Sunset Strip and Hawaiian Eye and and then Police Story, Mod Squad, the long list of credits is incredible. Which of those shows really stands out in your mind as, if you were going to repeat one, which would it be? Well, what comes to mind, and I don't know why really, uh, is Burke's Law. I, I just remember having a, a good time on the on that show. And I, I did do a scene where I had to uh, fall off a cliff backwards into the ocean. How do they do that? Well, I had to fall off the cliff backwards into the ocean. For real? But, Oh. Well, for real, but I, we were close to the shore, so it wasn't like I was falling into the ocean deep or anything. We were close to the shore, and the waves would come in. And when the wave came in, that was when I was supposed to fall back so that I would have plenty of water to fall into, but not so much that I might drown. So that was how they did it, and um, and I did it, you know, and, and I remember the actors all kind of, you know, marveling at uh, the fact that I was doing that. We had no idea you were a stunt woman. Well, I didn't know either. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was pretty physical. I had, had been, you know, pretty athletic as a kid and stuff like that. So I um, I guess that's why it, it kind of came naturally to me. I was not, uh, I wasn't afraid particularly. And then you worked at Paramount and Fox as well, didn't you? Yeah, I worked at Paramount, Fox, different places. After my contract at Warner's was up, I 
worked a lot of different places. Now, I see that um, you had worked on General Hospital. Yeah. Was yeah. that different for you? As we all know, soap operas have a different kind of work ethic. Oh, yeah. It's very different. Did you enjoy that process at all? (laughs) Well, I I got to enjoy it. In the beginning, I must say, it was a bit daunting because I certainly was not used to doing a whole scene in one take and not going back and doing pickups. I was not used to that at all. And um, we would never have another opportunity to do it. So it was very uh, unnerving to be doing a scene and to realize that, you know, this is it. You, you, there's no changing it. There's no, nothing I can do after this. So it better be right now. A little now. scary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's more, it's more like live, it's obviously more like live theater because there aren't any yes, do-overs. Yes, it is. Yeah. But it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I, I did uh, Days of Our Lives, too, and I enjoyed my stay there as well. And my, uh, I was Foxy Humdinger on that. That was Silly, silly part. The, uh-huh. the town, the town madam, you know. Oh, sounds like Salem. fun. No, yeah, it was. It was fun. But daytime is great work if you can get it. I mean, sure. I, I would recommend anybody um, if they get a part on a daytime soap soap opera to milk it, you know, into as many years as you can possibly do because it's a great job if you can get that one to go for twenty, twenty five years. That's yeah. that's the secret. Made. That's, That's a great yeah. run. Now, Diane, do you have any favorite leading men or well, a couple? Well, Richard Burton would, would definitely uh, hit the top of that list. Um, I loved Richard. He was terrific. I really liked Constance Fort. Uh-huh. She was actually a soap opera actress oh. who got hired to do this role in the movie, and she was very good. Of course, she was very accomplished because she had been working in theater and in soap operas for so many years. So she really helped me a lot um, on the set, and I I liked working with her. There were lots of people I loved being around. So you grew to really enjoy your craft and show business? It got very difficult after a while. After my contract, I did really well for a few years, but then uh, time went on. People move on. They change their ideas about what is really cool and what isn't and things like that. You know, I started to have to struggle for every little part that I could possibly get. And um, it became extremely difficult. And by that time, I, you know, had been married. I had a child. I had to raise my son on what money I was able to make. And by the way, it was not a lot. I hate to burst another bubble, but um, it was not a lot of money. We got paid pretty well for the time that we worked, but if you weren't working every day or many days out of the year, then you weren't making a lot of money. Yeah, I think for our listeners, uh, many of whom have no Hollywood experience, when they think of an actor or an actress, they think, oh, this person makes $15,000 a week, and they don't understand that sometimes they only make that for two weeks out of the year. Yeah, exactly. And, and you have to make that last the whole year, you know. <laughs> and 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 so much of a Hollywood career is planning for those hiatuses, for those gaps between engagements, even yeah. even for writers, producers, and directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really an inconsistent industry in terms of uh, career regularity, if you will. Oh gosh, yeah, that's for sure. 
You know, and that's and, and that's kind of a common theme that seems to run in our interviews uh, when we interview actors and actresses. How they started out cast for one character, and because the times changed so much, because in the '60s came and things changed quite a bit. Audience tastes change. Yes, they do very much so, and they certainly did during that period. During the 60s, they changed probably as much as I've ever seen them change. From, uh, you know, total glamour, everybody wanted to be glamorous, to really quite ordinary uh, women were gracing the screen all of a sudden in very ordinary roles. And I liked that. Personally, I thought it was a good change. It's just that I didn't fit into that particular change very well. My, my, My hair was too blonde, you know. I should have had brown hair. I tried to have brown hair for a while, but it didn't work for me because it was a wig. You know, you can't do that. It doesn't work. (laughs) For a certain part of your career, your looks were really an advantage. And and then later in in your career, your looks may have actually been a disadvantage because you were... They became kind of a disadvantage. Yeah, you were too pretty. You've remained beautiful. And not not everybody wants beauty. They want no. grit or earth or whatever. I admire that choice. I really do. I wish I um, could just could uh, act out more grit and earth and things like that. But that was not to be my fate. So let me let me ask you this: if you had if you had the opportunity to do it all over again, if you were seventeen years old again, yeah, what would you do differently? Okay, well. Um, I might have married the guy that mom wanted me to marry. The young doctor, um, right? The, do- the young doctor. I could have been a young doctor's wife and probably been just as happy. A little more as, normal, right? Uh, a little more normal It would have been world. much more yeah. normal. I would have had a family, and I would have done things that were very different from that kind of life that I ended up living. Barring that, if that hadn't happened, um, and I still got into the business, I would have definitely gotten over my fear of going to New York. It was a fear of going there and trying myself out there. I I did do it finally, but I was a little late. What I should have done was right away. I should have just gotten on the plane and gone to New York and, you know, and just done that, that work uh, of getting on stage and, and, and learning the craft from that point of view. I think I would have done much better overall. Did you ever, did you ever study acting formally? I did at times, but sporadically. Of course, I, I read books about acting and um, loved uh, some some of the wonderful techniques that I read about and practiced some of them. When you were at Warner, uh, when you were at Warner's, did they not have an actors program for the contract players? They sort of did. They did. I, I remember going to classes and and frankly being quite offended um, <laughs> by them because. I guess they were trying to get us to release our inhibition. And I I was not that easy to release. <laughs> I think I didn't I think I found it a little offensive at times as a woman. It was just offensive. Was it the sort of thing uh, where they tell you you're a tree and No, it was it was more like um you know, you have to get over your sexual inhibitions. Oh, we've had a couple of those ourselves. Suzanne and I yeah. both uh, studied acting with some people who will remain nameless at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it was all coming from the groin, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this teacher was. And I, so I didn't go to that person's class ever again. 
And when they suggested I go again, I, I wasn't interested. Before that, I, I was at Universal, and I did study a little bit about diction and things like that. So I had that down. And other things were just, you know, catch as catch can. I, I was I was on the screen, and I had to learn by doing. Most people find that the best teacher. Life is actually the best teacher, isn't it? Well, I think so. It certainly taught me very well, and I did you know, managed to get over many of my sexual inhibitions, by the way. <laughs> now, before we, before we get into your phenomenal new book, I, I want to ask the one question we ask everybody on the podcast series, and that is, if you had a young woman in front of you, 16, 17, 18 years old, and she wanted to get into the business, what advice would you give her? Well, uh, I would absolutely tell her to hone her craft. I would say go to New York and, and do that, or... Uh, go to a well-known school, like a college, for instance, where they do treat, teach uh, production and production techniques. And I mean, I think there are programs at UCLA and places like that that have that kind of thing now. And really learn the craft before you go out there. And don't aspire to do television. Aspire to be a superstar. Because if you don't aspire to be a superstar, then you'll just be another actor. And as another actor, you won't make much money. You might have a little bit of fame, but um, it, it won't go. It won't take you very far. Reach for the stars. Absolutely, oh, not just the stars, but the superstars. <laughs> That's great advice. Great advice. Yeah. So tell us how you became a writer. I mean, you've written this phenomenal autobiography, which I must say is a very compelling read. And you. you tell you tell some real truth there. I do. I, I decided that if I was going to tell the story, I was going to have to tell it truthfully. And the point wasn't, oh, how to be successful in the movie business, because I didn't do that particularly. I did it in the beginning, but as time went on, I didn't. So I felt like I had more to contribute in terms of personal growth. And so I wanted to tell the story from the point of view of my personal growth from a a young girl in the business to an older woman who now is, you know, retired. And I wanted to do that as honestly as I possibly could and show the, uh, it's actually more of a spiritual arc than a, um, anything else. The, the story really is about spiritual growth. And I really feel very strongly that I was extremely fortunate in some of my adversity because it caused me to become a more humble person, which I think is extremely valuable. It caused me to become a more authentic person, which is enormously valuable. And by the way, I would tell a young person, if you're going to learn how to be act, an actor, be an authentic actor and use your authentic self. Don't depend on your ego to get you through. And that's kind of what my book is about. Well, the book is called Famous Enough. Famous Enough. <laughs> Famous Enough, a Hollywood memoir. And it's, right. and it's really a pure autobiography. And as you say, that you do reveal an awful lot about some very terrible things that happened to you, as well as your kind of uh, personal reconstruction. Tell me how, what, in, what inspired you to write it and give us an idea what the process of getting, I mean, it's over 400 pages long. This is a substantial piece of work. This isn't something you sit down and just jot down notes. This is a, no. must have taken no, quite was, a while to put together. It was a big job. It really was. And what inspired me to do it was simply a lot of people throughout my life were always saying, Diane, you really should write a, your story because it's a good story. It's an interesting story. You've had 
a fascinating life. And I always thought, well, it was always certainly interesting. Um, so I, I was always encouraged by the people around me to, to do that. But what finally got me to do it was that I finally found the theme uh, of my life. And prior to that time, I couldn't think of anything that I could write that would be useful to anyone else. And I'm not going to just sit down and write my story for the sake of my myself. That's not my goal. I want to write my story so that other people can read it and get something from it. And so I felt like I had to have something to tell them. And so when I finally uh, settled on the theme of my story, then I was able to sit down and start writing. And when I did, I wrote for a good many years. And I I would have friends read my manuscripts and they'd get back to me and they'd say, well, this is good and this isn't, you know, and things like that. And I would rewrite and rewrite. And finally, I went to Baltimore because I have some friends there and I wanted to try city living again in, in a place like the East, in the East. I wanted to always be in the East for some reason. So I did that for a year. And while I was there, I tried to get the book published. And I couldn't get anywhere with it, I, you know. So while I was there, I got this call from Michael Michaud. Michael is an author himself. He wrote the book on Salminio, which was came out in 2010. And this was in 2010, and he called me up and he said, I've got this book released. I'm doing really well with it. I've been nominated for the National Book Award, and I would like to follow it up with something that's really almost done. And he had read my manuscript, and he liked it, and he wanted to add kind of the things that I left out, you know, so a lot of the details of my of my career that I had left out because I just, you know, they, they weren't that important to me, so I just skipped them. The truth is, and I know you realize this now, people who are not in the business, they just love to hear the details and about show business. Yes, they do. And Michael wanted to add that to it. And he did a fabulous job of that. He he came in and he took my personal story and he filled it out with all of the details of my career in such a way that I, I just never would have been able to do it. I, I just never could have. Sounds like and a perfect match. Right. I it think, was. It really, really was. Yeah, and I think you, only, you guys you guys managed to bring together so many disparate elements into what is truly a fully rounded life story. Um, beginning with your early childhood all the way through today. And the book is packed. I want our listeners to really take a look at it. It's on Amazon. It's packed with photographs and pictures. It's really one of the more complete biographies. And I've read a lot of uh, entertainment industry biographies. uh, Prior to your book, I was reading Sidney Poitier's book. Ah. And and he also was very personal and revelatory. But your ah. book goes even further, I think, in really? that it you really do feel the personal and professional struggles and see them both come together as a whole, which is terrific. Just a terrific well, thank read. Thank you. Just a thank terrific you. read. Really and, and we really do. You know, we have listeners in 64 yeah. growing, 64 countries, and we get a tremendous amount of feedback from around the world. And I hope your book just has phenomenal success because it really deserves it. Well, I so appreciate uh, your comments, Bob. I really do. It was uh, hard work. We It was hard getting it published. It was hard getting it all done. But when we finally did and it was released, I, it was just such a, a huge, a, a wonderful big feeling that I haven't had in a long, long, long time, being able to feel 
that I had actually accomplished something that was really Did, did you good. find it uh, therapeutic in any way? Because I'm sure it brought oh, sure. back a lot of memories, good and oh, bad. Yeah. yeah, well, and that's part of the reason you write a book is for the therapeutic value of it, I think. I uh, I recommend it to anyone who wants to write a, a book, a, the story of their life, even if it's just for their own family. I think it's a wonderful experience because you really have to kind of dig down into your soul and, you know, find your truth and so that you can tell it, you know. And I think it's a very valuable experience. Well, again, I want to remind the listeners it's available on Amazon as both a Kindle download. It's available for purchase. And mm-hmm. uh, Amazon delivers these things amazingly in about 36 hours. Wow, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. And your book is ranked, I, I was looking at it this morning on Amazon, it's ranked very highly. You're one of the best sellers. So wow. I just wow. suggest that uh, everybody get out there and take a look at what real Hollywood is really about. And the okay. pictures are fabulous. <laughs> pictures are fabulous. So Diane, we, thank can't, you. we can't thank you enough for doing this. I hope it hasn't Well, been, I enjoyed it very much. Hope it hasn't been too painful. Not at all. No, no. And, we uh, all like talking about ourselves, don't we? And, <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> thank you so uh, much, Diane. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. Alrighty, okay, we'll, we'll take be in care. Touch. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That was great. Diane McMahon is obviously beautiful inside and out. And the book, that's a must-read. You know what I forgot to ask her? What? You know, she starred in a movie with Elvis. Right. Spin out. uh, Spin out. And I really wanted to ask her what that experience was like. Well, apparently Richard Burton had more impact on her than Elvis did. Apparently she went for the more serious type, the more Shakespearean type. Right, right. Anyway, it was great talking to her and uh, hearing the kind of the reality behind a lot of Hollywood careers. I do want to remind our listeners, check out her book, Famous Enough. It's on Amazon and well worth the read. I love the, I love her cover picture. It's yeah. beautiful. Well, she, she never took a bad picture. No, she didn't. And we also want to remind people to go to our website, wherehollywoodhides.com, or go to Amazon and pick up our book. Where Hollywood Hides in Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. It's a great gift book. All right. Well, this is Bob McCullough. And this is, I'm just going to say Suzanne. Suzanne. Keep it, keep it loose. Keep yeah, it informal. Yeah. Okay. And today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a quick comment or review at iTunes forward slash where Hollywood hides. Those reviews really do help get the word out. And drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash where Hollywood hides and hit that like button. See you at the movies. From Chillicothe's and Paducah's With their bazookas To get their names up in lights All armed with photos From local rotos With their hair in ribbons And legs in tights Hooray for Hollywood You have no way of knowing who You'll be another Papa Dion, your name and me on. If you get lucky, you could. Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top his five. Hooray for Hollywood! Hooray for